Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It's a horrible thing to actually believe that a man can murder his wife and son in cold blood like that, but all signs were pointing in that direction. My big light bulb moment, and I talk about this in the book, was we FOIA'd for his jailhouse phone calls in 2022, and we listened to hundreds of them. And I don't remember him one time asking about the investigation. And he did not seem to be concerned or sad about Maggie and Paul's loss. And listening to those phone calls and listening to what a narcissist he is manipulating the situation all the time, I had a moment that was like, oh my God, I think he absolutely did it. We realized that this book is, is about Mandy's journey and it's about the power of local journalism and what it looks like to really make an impact in that way and what it looks like to get to know and really respect your sources and give time to victims to help them share their story and the impact that that kind of reporting can make. This isn't the same as a, a true crime story that focuses on the killer and getting inside his mind and all the steps that lead up to figuring out how he works. It's about the people around him and larger ideas and the cor corruption, the people who enabled him and about people like Mandy who really dug in and created change. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And today is another two-part episode that I am very fascinated about. I know Alexis is too. So if you are on Patreon, you're getting this all at once, right, Lex? Oh, yeah. So with all of our multi-parters, you don't have to wait like everybody else. You can log in your Patreon and get them all right now and binge part two right after part one. Absolutely. Please join us over there. There's so much good bonus, not even bonus, so many full-length fascinating true crime cases over there. But yeah, if you can't wait to get to part two, come join us over there. But do we want to just get right into the episode today? I think we should. I mean, we have a lot to unpack and some of you might be familiar with the case, maybe not. Either way, there's going to be a lot for you to learn. Absolutely. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. 
take it from me, the world of investigative crime reporting can be a strange beast, taking you places you never anticipated. When you're enmeshed in something unfolding in real time, it's a race to get that one interview or piece of information that no one else has. The adrenaline rush of getting the scoop and being the first to break exclusive news is hard to beat. Depending on the case, you don't necessarily need to worry about looking over your shoulder and going about your daily life, but sometimes you do. So what happens when your investigative work takes you so deep into a case that it isn't just compelling, but has the potential to become dangerous for you personally? When it's your job to keep pushing to get to the truth and you know you're close, how far do you go in the public interest in terms of risking your own safety and your own mental health? Sometimes inadvertently becoming part of a case and how reporters cope with that is an unavoidable occupational hazard. We begin today's case on February 24th of 2019. At the 91st Academy Awards, Green Book took out Best Picture and Bohemian Rhapsody took home four awards. In the South, floods in Tennessee resulted in the death of one person and a state of emergency. In the world of pop music, Ariana Grande was in her fifth week at number one with Seven Rings, while Halsey was in the number two spot with Without Me. And at the box office, everybody was going to see How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, and cyberpunk action film Alita Battle Angel. The setting for today's case is the low country of South Carolina. Situated in the state's southernmost region, the sprawling historic biodiverse area of around 1.1 million people is located right on the coast and is the traditional home of the Gullah Geechee people. Hunting, boating, fishing, and abundant wildlife draws tourists and residents outdoors to enjoy the local sea islands, beaches, and subtropical climate. But the low country has a darker side too. One of the poorest regions in South Carolina, the low country is a place where inherited power and wealth hold sway over many aspects of residents' lives, and not much rocks the boat in terms of law and order. There's a system in place, and woe betide you if you try to buck that system or push back against the well-connected who control it, let alone even suggest that corruption taints the ways things run behind the scenes. Historically, the low country is the sort of place where expressions, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and it's not what you know, but who you know, could never be more fitting in terms of local legal bureaucracy. And we are fortunate today to have not one, but two first-degree guests. Our first guest is investigative reporter, podcaster, and now published author, Mandy Matney. Mandy is literally the ultimate first degree for today's case because she's spoken to and interviewed almost everybody that's connected to it. And through that process, she's also gotten close with several key figures in the case. Back in February of 2019, Mandy was working in South Carolina when she was assigned to cover an unfolding story of a boat accident that took the life of a 19-year-old girl named Mallory Beach. The accident occurred in nearby Beaufort County. Six young people had been on the 17-foot boat, including Mallory's intoxicated friend, 19-year-old Paul Murdaugh, who was at the wheel. 2019, I started reporting on the boat crash that killed Mallory Beach involving Paul Murdoch, where he was the suspected driver. I was working at a local newspaper and heard that there was a boat crash one Sunday morning and there was a missing girl. A 19-year-old girl missing in the water on the heels of a boat accident is heartbreaking and tragic. Mandy had no idea that this assignment would mark the beginning of a years-long journey and obsession leading her to seek the truth about a powerful family and taking her down one rabbit hole after the next. But that's what happened. 
So on the night of February 23rd, Paul, his then-girlfriend, and two other couples met up for drinks before getting on Paul's parents' boat to head up to Beaufort River to an oyster roast, which honestly sounds freaking delicious. Amazing. Oh, gosh. Several hours later, they left and drove down the river to a local bar where Paul and one of his friends continued drinking. By the time the group left around 1.15 a.m., Paul was very drunk, yet he insisted on driving anyway. The group tried to talk him out of it, but Paul was adamant, becoming aggressive, belligerent, and even spitting and slapping his girlfriend. What a guy. Jesus, dude. So Paul was driving the boat extremely recklessly as they moved up the river. And as the boat approached Paris Island, it struck a bridge at high speed, which caused it to bottom out on the rocks underneath it. Most of the group was hurled from the boat, and everyone on the boat sustained injuries, but had come to the surface eventually. Everybody except Mallory Beach, who was nowhere to be found. The police were called, and a massive search was conducted. And this search was a really difficult one, because it was still pitch black outside. But even the morning sunlight didn't provide any answers as to where Mallory ended up. In fact, Mallory wasn't even found the next day, or the next, or the next. In fact, it took an entire week to recover Mallory's body. Mallory Beach had graduated from West Hampton High School, where she played on the soccer team. And at the time of her death, the 19-year-old attended the same college as Paul Murdaugh. She was working at a clothing store called It's Retail Therapy, and she had a boyfriend named Anthony Cook. Mallory went to church, and she loved animals. She loved her family and had tons of friends. And naturally, on the heels of Mallory's death, her family and her boyfriend, Anthony, who was there that night, remember, were absolutely just devastated. As reported by Yahoo News, Anthony Cook wrote on Facebook, I have to live the rest of my life with the memory of getting thrown into the freezing pitch black water with the love of my life in my arms. I had to swim against that current for 15 minutes in a panic, screaming her name and begging her to answer me. I had to swim to shore without her to save my own life, and I live in the regret of that forever. Once Mallory was found, an autopsy was conducted, and it revealed that she died from drowning after sustaining blunt force trauma injuries. But it was what happened in the hours and days after the boat crash that really piqued our first-degree Mandy's interest. She started hearing about Paul's powerful family and how there may be a cover-up over his involvement in Mallory's death. Immediately that morning, people just started saying, this is from a family of lawyers, they're very powerful, family's going to cover it up, and all these things. I had worked a lot of crime coverage as a journalist in my life, but this always just felt incredibly different. And just started pulling its strings from that moment on. Mandy started doing what all good journalists do when faced with a story like this. She started digging, looking into the circumstances of the boat crash and the immediate aftermath. She learned that Paul Murdaugh was a privileged young man from one of the low country's most high-profile and self-entitled families, the Murdaughs. And his family was a man named Alex Murdaugh. So who were they? Paul's father was Richard Alexander Murdaugh. He goes by Alex Murdaugh, and he's a lawyer and a member of a prominent South Carolina family. From 1920 to 2006, that's 87 years, his great-grandfather, grandfather, and father all served as a solicitor for the South Carolina Low County region. And by the way, they were all named Randolph Murdaugh. The role of the solicitor is an elected position which oversees prosecutions throughout the area. And in South Carolina, the solicitor is comparable to a role that, like, a district attorney would play in other states. And because of its prosecutorial legacy, the family gained a reputation for its power and ability to wield influence. 
Alex Murdaugh didn't deviate far from that of his elder family members. He, too, became a lawyer. He worked as an attorney in a local prosecutor's office and eventually at the law firm of Peters, Murdaugh, Parker, Elstroth, and Detrick. The firm was founded in 1910 by Randolph Murdaugh Sr., who's Alex's great-grandfather. So to be blunt, if you looked at the word nepotism in the dictionary, you could expect to find pictures of the Murdaughs. These are OG nepo babies. And over the decades, the wealth and power that they amassed was really enviable, especially when it came to their connections to local law enforcement. And if you were a lawyer or a defendant in a local civil case, they really weren't a family that you ever wanted to have to face in court. And by all accounts, they appeared to be the picture of Southern success, a dynasty family. And needless to say, Paul Murdaugh had the weight of many powerful people behind him. Right. And Mandy's reporting on this in real time following this boat accident. And she started to learn about some of the inner workings of this family. So for several years, Paul's attorney father, Alex, would supply Paul and his friends with alcohol despite being underage. So let him party, let him do all of these things despite it being illegal and him being an attorney himself. And Paul, at 19, had a reputation of being quite hot-headed, and he had a love for guns and alcohol, and the whole family did, and the Murdaughs had many, many guns. In fact, Paul's ex-girlfriend, Morgan Dowdy, revealed that Paul could be violent during an interview she gave during the Netflix docuseries Murdaugh Murders, A Southern Scandal. And we know even when his friends that night were trying to convince him not to drive the boat, he spit in his girlfriend's face and got violent with her. I mean, not a great look for someone only 19 years old or anyone, frankly. No. And it's just like, you just think about all the power that the family has and how he has probably never told no his entire life, that he's just like a little freaking brat, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was reportedly another side to Paul as well. According to the BBC, other friends described Paul as inquisitive and kind and that he took particular care of his elderly grandparents. Either way, as Mandy, or first degree, continued to report on the case, she was finding that rumors that Mallory's death might be swept under the rug kind of seemed to be true. And is it really that surprising given all we've learned about the power of the Murdoch family? Right, because it turns out that while Paul was three times the legal limit at the time of the boat crash, he wasn't booked or questioned by the police at all. Later, when he was in the hospital, his dad, Alex, and grandfather, Randolph, took an active role in speaking to everybody present to raise doubt and confusion over who was actually driving and lead the investigation away from Paul. And it became clear to Mandy that if any of the other kids involved in the accident had been the one actually driving the boat, this would have played out completely differently. The kids even notice it in the way that they talk about it, of the haves and have-nots, and they call them the high-society kids, the privileged kids. But it's, it's just really sad. It wasn't until almost two months later, on April 18th, that 20-year-old Paul was charged with boating under the influence causing death and two counts of boating under the influence causing great bodily injury. He faced 25 years if convicted, but still he wasn't booked into jail. At his arraignment, he pleaded not guilty and was released on $50,000 bond. The charges stemming from the boat crash and Mallory's death had brought on a lot of bad press on the Murdoch family. And this was especially the case because Mallory's family were understandably gutted by losing her so tragically. Mallory was gone because of Paul's negligence behind the wheel, and they wanted him punished. They were worried that Paul's powerful father was going to get him out of this completely free. A month after Mallory's death, her family filed a $10 million wrongful death lawsuit against Alex Murdaugh. 
And as more and more time passed behind closed doors, things were becoming more fractured than anyone even realized. And if you thought that after killing his friend during a boat accident, Paul would kind of be flying under the radar and trying to stay out of trouble, you would be wrong. He once again relied on his dad to get him out of trouble after he was once again caught drinking while driving his friends around on the boat. However, Paul remained in college at the University of South Carolina, and at this point he was living in an apartment close to campus. So things weren't great for the Murdaws as the specter of scandal loomed large over the family. It's said that by early 2021, further cracks in the family's facade of perfection were becoming evident via tension between 52-year-old Alex and his wife of 27 years, Maggie. Maggie, who was born Margaret Kennedy Branstetter, graduated from the University of South Carolina, where she met Alex Murdaugh in 1991. She was a member of Kappa Delta Sorority. They got married in 1993 and eventually had two sons, Paul and Buster. On the heels of Paul Murdaugh's boat crash, things within the family just got more and more stressful and apparently it was palpable. This pressure was compounded further because the family finances were under strain and Alex was quietly addicted to opioids, which he had hidden all around the house apparently, apparently deep, deep in addiction and nobody in the family knew. And in September of 2021, People Magazine reported that Maggie had met with a divorce lawyer within this time period as well. So things within this family are kind of buckling under the pressure. This brings us to the evening of June 7th, 2021, which was a normal day for the whole Murdaugh family. And Alex, he went to work. He did everything just as he normally did and arrived home at the end of the day. At the time, he was waist deep in legal work related to the civil suit that had been filed by the family of Mallory Beach. That evening, Alex and Paul spent some time together driving around the Murdaugh property before the family ate together. And according to Alex, Maggie and Paul went up to the property's dog kennels, which was a short drive from the main house. So for some context to get oriented in terms of the property we're dealing with, their sprawling Moselle property spanned about 1,700 acres, which is a massive piece of land. Yeah. And on this property, there was the family home, another sprawling structure, big, big house. They had these dog kennels, which is where Maggie and Paul were going to. They had a cabin, and they had long and large stretches of swampland as well. We're talking big property with structures that are all far away from one another. Okay, so now that you have an understanding, let's get back to the timeline. So after getting home, Alex took a nap around 7 p.m. Then he said he woke up around 7.30. He later told detectives that when he woke up, Paul and Maggie weren't there, and he hadn't seen them since they all ate dinner together. He texted them and let them know that he was going to drive up the road and visit his mother who lived close by. Alex then called Maggie's cell just after 9 p.m., but there was no answer. Then, just after 10 p.m., Alex arrived back home. When he realized that his wife and son weren't back at the house, he drove over to the dog kennels to see if they were still there. There, he found the bodies of Maggie and Paul on the ground, not far from each other. They'd each been shot dead. 22-year-old Paul lay near the kennel's feed room. He'd been shot once in the chest before being shot again at an upwards angle near his shoulder and his head. And 52-year-old Maggie was shot in the abdomen and in the head a total of five times. Horrifying discovery, totally unexpected. Alex dialed 911, and we're going to play a bit of that call for you now. Hey, I'm standing 911. Where's your emergency? This is Alex Murdoch at 4147 Moselle Road. I need the police to answer immediately. My wife and child got badly. Stay on the line with me, okay? Yes, sir. Stay on the line with me, okay? 
Connor, communication. Collison, I have an Alex Murdoch on the line. Caller from 4147 Moselle Road. But I've been up to it now. It's bad. Okay. Okay, and are they breathing? No, ma'am. Okay, and you said it's your wife and your son? My wife and my son. What color is your house on the outside? Uh, it's white. You can't see it from the road. Okay, is it a house or a mobile home? It's a house. Okay, and what is your name? <laughs> my name is Alex Murdoch. Okay, did you hear anything, or did you come home and find them? I've been gone. I, I just came back. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? No, ma'am. As far as characteristics at the scene, Maggie and Paul, who had no defensive wounds, had each been shot with a different firearm. Paul with a 12-gauge shotgun and Maggie with an AR-style assault rifle. So did this mean that there were two assailants who were responsible or had one killer used two different guns? The entire community was reeling at the news of this brutal double murder, but law enforcement was quick to say there was no risk to locals, and it's unclear why they said that so early at that point. However, very little information was actually being publicly released. So naturally, the rumor mills start churning. Of course, even more so because of the reputation and notoriety of this family. I mean, this was huge news in this kind of small town feeling place. Everyone had questions about who could have been responsible, who would have wanted to target the family. Was it someone connected to Mallory Beach and her death? Was this a revenge killing? Was it something deeper? You know, with roots of this family so deep in law enforcement, could someone else who wanted revenge against his family be responsible? The questions, they just kept coming. And Alex Murdoch seemed really gutted on the heels of this tragedy, and compounding his grief, his father Randolph died just a few days later after the double murder. Alex and his surviving son Buster announced a $100,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers. And at first, people sympathized with the mourning widower, but then the cracks started to begin to show. The Murdoughs loved their guns, and they actually owned several of the same rifles as the one that killed Maggie. But both the murder weapons were missing, and none of the family's rifles were seized for ballistics testing. And the crime scene didn't indicate that the mother and son had been executed in a professional hit, which suggested that they were shot by somebody that they knew. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, uh Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Mandy became suspicious of Alex Murdaugh early on. I had just this gut feeling from the first day that I found out about the murders, that it had something to do with the family, just knowing what I knew about the Murdoch family and how powerful they were and how few people would ever say a word about them alone. Murdering them on their property was just an insane concept to me. But not only that, I had a lot of really great sources close to the investigation and all signs were pointing to Alex the entire time You'd hear rumors in the community that were saying, heard it's the groundskeeper, heard blah, blah, blah. But the good sources that I had were just pointing me toward Alex and that something was off. After the murders and when I started writing about Alex Murdoch in a negative slash skeptical, what is this guy doing type of light, something's really up with Alex Murdoch. Those types of stories, people got very 
angry with me and started the, how dare you, he's a victim, you're a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. As Mandy dug further into Alex's reputation, people in the community were getting angry with her. But Mandy knew she was onto something and in too deep to let go of what she was uncovering. After all, her interest in this family started with a boat accident. Now Paul, the driver of said boat that killed Mallory Beach, and his mother Maggie had been gunned down in a callous double slaying. This story was transforming in front of her eyes, with the ante being upped at every turn. Mandy had no idea what was going to happen next, but she was making connections with new sources every day and knew she had her finger on the pulse of the story and had an opportunity to make a real difference. Seeing the opportunity, Maggie decided to launch a podcast to detail all that she had uncovered and where she could update the public in real time as the news broke. She called the podcast The Murdaw Murders. And at the time, Mandy had never done a podcast before. She didn't know what equipment that she needed or even how to edit audio at all. So she was surprised as anybody when her show quickly shot up to the number one spot on iTunes. So anyone listening to this who's been compelled to do something like this, but the fear of not knowing how to held you back. I mean, Mandy is an inspiration in that way. You know, she in real time realized that she could disseminate information far and wide. It's intimidating to put yourself out there and be vulnerable and say, here world, here's my podcast. But she did it. And this goes to show you can absolutely do it too. And it's definitely worth trying. As we said, Mandy's podcast became a national sensation which means you've got to be uncovering something explosive, which she was. So what did Mandy find? And how did her interest in this family change her life and ultimately bring her into the center of the story? To answer these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. In the aftermath of the murders of Paul and Maggie Murdaugh, Mandy was simultaneously reporting on the case and producing her own podcast to share what she was learning in real time. The success of Mandy's podcast was meteoric. The story had broad themes that resonated with everyone, everywhere. It was a story of the abuse of power, a story of the haves and the have-nots, a story of women paying for the mistakes of men. These were real people Mandy was investigating, and the story had serious implications. Three people were dead. Mandy was threatened. She was intimidated as a result of her reporting, but she kept going. And following the success of Mandy's podcast, she also got a book deal, which would allow her the chance to paint a fuller picture of her journey as a reporter on this case, documenting not just the specifics of the case, but her personal experience, her pushback and the misogyny confronting her along the way at every turn. The book would come to be titled Blood on Their Hands. And due to the demands of writing a book of this nature and on this timeline, it was determined that Mandy needed a writing partner and an independent sounding board for her book. And this is where our second first degree comes in for today's case. Mandy was introduced to author Carolyn Murnick. And if you're a regular listener, you might remember Carolyn from way back in episode 65 when we talked to her about her book, The Hot One. Carolyn's close friend, Ashley Ellerin, was a 22-year-old fashion design student. She was murdered in her Hollywood home as she prepared to go out with Ashton Kutcher. Carolyn would later learn that Ashley was murdered by a serial killer named Mike Gargiulo who lived close to Ashley. Writing the hot one about Ashley was an extremely emotional experience for Carolyn, and her experience made her the perfect fit to help Mandy with the journey of writing her own story. It didn't take long for Carolyn to get sucked into the intrigue of the privileged low country life and the mystery of the Murdoch family. Here's Carolyn. 
I had a long career as a magazine editor. And then after my book came out, I spent a few years figuring out what's next. And I have sort of organically transitioned into helping other writers tell their stories in, in the nonfiction space. And I have kind of developed a niche with working with empathetic true crime storytelling by women, which has all the same DNA as my own book. And I was really excited that Mandy's agent was familiar with my work and brought me in for this project. And there's just so many common themes that I really connected with. So I felt like working with Mandy, I got to tell her amazing story and also continue to write about values and ways of storytelling that were important to me. And, you know, I could build upon everything I had learned from my first book and use that in telling Mandy's story. I knew very little, actually. I had heard the name Murda. I didn't know about Mandy's podcast, and I had not followed the ins and outs of it at all. So I sort of used that outsider perspective as Mandy and I were getting to know each other, and I think that helped in the narrative, learning about all the information and everything she was discovering. Here's Mandy. I liked that Carolyn wasn't ultra-familiar with it, because I think she probably thought that a lot of details were really important that if somebody was over familiar with the story, they might have not have thought they were as interesting. Mm -hmm. Carolyn and Mandy hit it off right away, and then they got to work. Early on, we realized that this book is about Mandy's journey, and it's about the power of local journalism and what it looks like to really make an impact in that way. It's a personal narrative. This isn't the same as a, a true crime story that focuses on the killer and getting inside his mind and all the steps that lead up to figuring out how he works. It's about the people around him and larger ideas and the cor corruption, the people who enabled him and about people like Mandy who really dug in and created change. I like to call this story sort of a, a feminist hero's journey. As we follow Mandy in the arc of this book, she's really stepping into her power as a person that has a real talent and grit for doing the sort of bare bones work of journalism, which is often the sort of unsexy filing FOIA requests and going through public databases for documents, going to courthouses and getting things from clerks and comparing all the numbers and the charts to find discrepancies. And she started making connections with people in Hampton County who had never before wanted to talk to journalists. And we see what a difference that made in what the kind of information she was able to get and the complex picture she was able to tell about the way that this family for generations had been kind of ruling with an iron hand among this poor, underserved, large region of South Carolina in all sorts of ways, both for, you know, what kind of cases got prosecuted and which people were thrown in jail and who was getting favors done by police. We need more stories out there of women, to sound cheesier, women speaking their truth, women sharing their life experiences, women doing important work and actually showing all the challenges that they go through just to do their work. These are the stories we need more of out there in the world. Mandy, too, felt it was really important to come at the book thematically from a feminist perspective. That's a big theme of the book is being a woman, not only in journalism, but a woman in any sort of business today. This is still a world run by the patriarchy, whether we like it or not. And not only was it hard to fight these systems, but it's even harder as a woman to fight these systems. 
we call it the good old boy system in South Carolina, which is just all of these old men who are powerful and care about nobody besides themselves. And the Murdochs were a huge part of that. But there's also a great theme in the book that it was really a lot of great women who were the reason why this dynasty fell. In Alex's trial, a lot of the most damning testimony against him were women. A lot of women were my amazing sources who helped me so much throughout this investigation. And I've always wanted this to be a story of not just true crime, not just about the Murdochs, but a story that actually inspires people. And there's some scenes with me kind of gaining my confidence and figuring out how to stand up for myself at work and how that played into my continued investigation of all of this. And I think a lot of these scenes are very relatable to any women who have had problems in, with male bosses, et cetera, et cetera. Exposing the Southern good old boy network, alleged corruption, and the way the privileged of the low country benefit from their connections is another theme of the book Carolyn thinks speaks to Mandy's drive, integrity, and strong moral compass. She really drilled into that world and started to paint a picture of for people that this boat crash is not an isolated incident. And this isn't just another thing that we can see on the paper for a week and then it'll disappear. It has major implications and it has roots of why things are the way they are. Keeping the attention on that, it matters which cases get covered because not all of them do. And, you know, often white privileged kids with expensive defense attorneys can get their charges to disappear or get plea deals and the public never gets to hear about what happened and they're not treated the same as poor or people of color defendants. And so recognizing those larger ideas was another thing that motivated Mandy to keep the attention on these people. There's benefit to them to upholding the status quo because people just didn't write about the Murdoch's in the way that Mandy wanted to write about. And so she had pushback from her bosses until finally she went to an independent journalism organization and then ultimately started her own podcast to be able to really expose the things that she wanted to say and, and write the stories that people weren't talking about. By this point, Mandy had learned that the special treatment Paul had received in the aftermath of Mallory's death was just one example of how the Murdoch family felt that they were above the law. In fact, they made it a practice of attempting to influence police inquiries focused on any member of the Murdoch family. The pressure and humiliation intensified for Alex during the police investigation when Alex was forced to resign in early of September of 2021. This was after his law firm partners found out that he misappropriated millions of dollars in client funds. In fact, back on the same day of the murder of Paul and Maggie, the law firm's CFO had confronted Alex over almost $800,000 that was missing. These were explosive revelations. Alex Murda was clearly not as buttoned up and squeaky clean as he presented himself. Here's Mandy. And then the other thing, there's missing millions and millions of dollars. Where did it all go? What was Alex doing with it? And that leads into who else was involved in this? The missing money and the prospect of financial crimes created even more questions for Mandy and took her down even more rabbit holes about what Alex Murdoch was doing and potentially involved in. Then on September 4th of 2021, a call came into 911 reporting that 53-year-old Alex had been shot in the head on the side of a rural road while changing a tire. Captain County 911, what is your emergency? On um, Salkahatchee Road. Okay, what's the address on Salkahatchee Road? 
I'm by the church uh, at the Hampton County side. Okay, what's going on? I stop. I got a flat tire, mm -hmm. and I stopped, and somebody stopped to help me. And when I turned my back, they tried to shoot me. Oh, okay. Were you shot? Yes, but okay. I mean I'm okay. Did they actually shoot you? Or they tried to shoot you. They shot me, but. Uh Okay, wait, you need EMS? Uh, well, I mean, yes, I, I can't drive. Okay. I'm and I'm bleeding a lot. Where, where part of your body? Uh, I'm not sure, somewhere on my head. What's your name? Alex Murdoch. So for me, the fact, I can't imagine being Mandy watching this unfold in real time. It's like, first Paul's wrapped up in something. Then yeah. Paul and Maggie are murdered. Now, there's an attempt on Alex Murdaugh's life, apparently, while he's changing a tire. Is this family being targeted would be my question. And, like, what about Buster? Like, is he next? Yeah. Or is there something wacky going on here? Well, you know, from the outside perspective, of course, that's going to be the first thing that you're thinking. It's just they are going down like flies and who could possibly be after them? Because especially with Alex just randomly on the side of the road, that's a hit. You know, it has to be a hit unless obviously something else is going on. Right. And I don't believe in this many coincidences in a row. You know, like generally, if something like this is happening within a family, there's a common denominator because no one's this unlucky. No family is this unlucky, right? No, it's one of those things, too, that if you were watching a movie about this, you'd be like, mm, this is implausible. This is too crazy. Like, there's just no way that this is realistic whatsoever. Yeah, you can't write this stuff if you tried, right? No. So when all this happened, when this attempt was made on Alex's life or whenever this incident occurred, turns out the walls were kind of closing in on Alex Murdoch from a financial standpoint. So the Mallory Beach civil lawsuit that had been filed by her family had opened Alex Marta up to all sorts of financial discovery. So that's people being able to subpoena documents, bank records. And we know from what Jack said earlier, we know that Alex was in trouble with his law firm for misappropriating funds. Okay, so all of this stuff was coming into light. And it turns out that there was a lot more that Alex Marta was hiding, not just in terms of his professional finances, but his personal finances as well. Alex Murdoch is just a nut. And I think that his life, it was a pattern. You see a pattern when he's about to be exposed, when the walls are crashing around him, he chooses violence. He did that with the murders. We found out sometime during the investigation that he was confronted about his finances on the day of the murders. And then there was the same pattern on the day before the roadside shooting. And I call it a shooting because I don't even think he was actually shot. There was no bullet wound, no anything. But I think it, it again shows the privilege and narcissism of a guy like that who can say, I'm going to stage this whole thing and the reason, again, was sympathy. He wanted sympathy to get everybody off of his back and so he wouldn't be exposed. And he really thought that he'd be able to fool everyone with whatever that was. After claiming that someone tried to murder him, Alex caved and admitted that he'd actually hired a hitman to kill him in what was essentially an assisted suicide. And he named his distant cousin and handyman, 61-year-old Curtis Eddie Smith, as the shooter. Needless to say, when Mandy reported on this explosive development, the public 
exploded with interest, becoming even further enthralled with this roller coaster, batshit crazy case. I mean, how could you not? Like, it's just getting weirder and weirder by the moment. So trying to mitigate the mounting public scrutiny and outrage, Alex's defense counsel tried to excuse Alex's behavior by pointing to his years-long struggle with opioid addiction. And also, poor Alex, his his wife and son were just killed. You know, to garner sympathy, that was the go-to. And there are so many more questions. Like, in terms of the stolen money from his law firm, was that money stolen to fuel Alex's addiction? In terms of the bizarre ruse involving Eddie the hitman, did Alex feel that he had no other way out other than hiring somebody to kill him? Why were members of the Murdoch family dropping like flies? And how many more skeletons were actually hiding in the closets? Right. And there's even more questions like, what is the truth about Alex Murdoch? Was he a suicidal, grief-stricken widow in the throes of an addiction, as he claimed to be? Or was there much more to this suicide attempt? Was he really trying to end it all? Did his crimes go even deeper than what Mandy had exposed in her reporting to this point? The intrigue surrounding this case would only continue to gain momentum. The public was totally seduced. There was money, there was power, there was murder, and a crumbling Murdoch family dynasty that the public just couldn't look away from. And Mandy found herself in the crosshairs of all of it. Like we said at the beginning of this episode, this is part one of a two-parter about the Murdoch family. And Mandy and Carolyn will obviously be back with us next week for the conclusion of our Murdoch case coverage. In the meantime, Mandy and Carolyn's book, Blood on Their Hands, is available wherever books are sold. So go get your copy now. I can't wait for all of you to be back with us next week. But until then, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are The Island Packet, Fitz News, Live 5 News, The Post and Courier, The U.S. Attorney's Office, The South Carolina Attorney General, NBC News, The Guardian, ABC News, The New York Times, CBS News, The Washington Post, Court Documents, The Associated Press, CNN, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, and NPR. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.